Welcome back to another episode of the Hatchet Weekly News Podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It. I'm Alec Rich. Since the return of students to campus this semester, one of the most significant concerns that's been raised by members of the student body has been the university's handling of Title IX cases and its failure to protect survivors of sexual assault. The university, for its part, has issued responses in attempts to address these criticisms, which we'll get into. So first, here to speak through some of what we know and to provide some important context on this issue is the Hatchet's Assistant News Editor for Student Life, Abby Kennedy. All right, Abby, thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So just to go back, you know, when did this new wave of concerns over GW's handling of Title IX cases begin and, and why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I first noticed it a couple weeks ago um, on social media on the Overheard at GW account on Facebook. Um, and there was a group of posts from survivors who were voicing concerns about mishandling of their cases by the Title IX office and GWPD as well. Um, and uh, there was a growing number of students sharing their stories on this post. Um, so that's that's when I first uh, saw it on social media. Right. And what have students specifically criticized as far as both the Title IX office's handling of cases and GWPD's response to requests to bar sales from campus and what are some of the demands of student leaders moving forward to? Right. Um, so students criticize the barring process and specifically the challenges of getting a non-GW student barred. Um, and the barring process is also left up to the discretion of Chief Tate. Um, so survivors had experiences with poor communication as well from the Title IX office, receiving emails from them, um, and some of SASA's demands for survivors that they had talked to um, is the standardization of the barring process for non-GW community members and increased and long-term funding for the Office of Advocacy and Support. So those are the two things that survivors are really looking to see right now. And as you reported on the, the student advocacy group, GW Protects Rapists, who has kind of taken the lead on you know, pressuring GW on some of these demands, attended commencement last weekend to silently protest around this issue. Mm-hmm. of GW's handling of sexual assault cases. And as you reported, there were about 75 students there. So, so what did you see and hear from students there first off? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the protest started in Kogan um, and students were making signs. And then we walked from there uh, over to commencement on the National Mall. Um, and they chose to protest at commencement because uh, while well, they made it explicitly clear uh, that they were not there to interrupt the ceremony at all, which they didn't. Um, it was a silent protest. Um, they knew that they would get the most coverage there for their demands. And they created signs. A couple that I saw were, when will they protect me? Why is his status deemed more essential than my safety? GW hold rapists accountable. And so, uh, yeah, there was a group of about 75 students at the mall. And then they paired off into smaller groups of about like four students who then walked around the boundaries of commencement. But like I said, it was a silent protest, so nothing was interrupted and they were situated behind uh, where commencement was taking place. Right, and did it appear as though anyone from administration took notice of, of the protest in, in any way? Yeah, I think so. I know a couple students that were there said that they had parents come up to them and just uh, ask questions. They were interested to know what they were protesting. People along the way when we were walking took interest in the protest, reading the signs, asking students what they were protesting for. I think administration was aware of the protest potentially before they were happening. So I think that they definitely took notice. So I kind of want to ask too, 
And what do you make of GW students strongly mobilizing around this issue and sounding the alarm now? And especially coming back from COVID, obviously this is our first in-person semester in a long time. And so some of these issues are bound to come up, but especially as we continue to see students on, at other schools around the country focusing in on this issue as well, you know, where do you see GW's place in that? Yeah, I think um, students coming together through social media to share their stories. And as I was watching, as one student would share their story, another student would come out with theirs as well. So kind of just like this snowball effect. Um, and I think from what I've heard from survivors that this issue is incredibly imminent and they express that they want to feel protected and safe on campus. And currently they, they feel extremely unsafe on campus uh, as some of their alleged assailants haven't been barred. So they're still able to walk around campus, um, go into buildings. So I think just the general sentiment was that survivors want to feel safe on their own college campus and currently they don't. So I think that's why it's so important that they're expressing these demands uh, urgently and right now. So how officials you know, respond to these criticisms from students? Yeah, so the Title IX office um, released a statement um, a couple, I, I believe, I want to say a week and a half ago now, potentially more. But they also spoke with us um, and officials from the Title IX office said that during the pandemic, they were understaffed. So they only had, they had two staff members who were essentially doing the work of five staff members. So they did acknowledge that communication with survivors was not what it should have been. And so to mitigate that, they've increased uh, hiring. So they're bringing on some new staff members. And Chief Tate had also said that he wants to clarify the barring process for students. And he's going to make himself available to talk with survivors, talk through concerns, any questions that they have. And the Title IX office said that they would be doing the same. So they would make themselves available for students to talk with them about concerns and questions. Um, and they had also spoken with the SASA co-presidents, Sharon Will, about uh, kind of bringing those survivors' concerns and acting uh, as a voice for those concerns to the Title IX office and the administration. And so what have students have been since in terms of that response from officials? Yeah, so um, students voice that, you know, they, they felt that their, or survivors voice that they felt their demands uh, were not being met, and the statement released by a Title IX office was not sufficient. And the main problem that I spoke with the co-presidents of SASA about was that uh, the statement didn't directly address their demands, those specific demands that I had um, mentioned earlier. Um, and it was not centered around survivors who were harmed by the process, so the language that they used didn't center around the people who were harmed. Uh, and voicing those concerns and voicing that they felt unsafe on campus. Um, and it was more centered around administrators. So those were the main concerns that I heard from SASA on behalf of survivors. And lastly, I just wanted to ask, you know, where do you see the situation going from here in terms of you know, further advocacy from survivors and, and student leaders and in terms of maybe even more of a response from GW? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I talked with uh, Stephanie Lee, who runs the GW Protects Rapists account, um, and she said commencement was only phase one in a larger process of uh, bringing these demands to the administration and having those demands met. Uh, so survivors are going to continue to push through events, press releases. Uh, we've already seen a couple come out from SASA since the protests when the article came out, and other phases are going to be released in the coming weeks. Abby, thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. 
So while students continue to push the university to make changes, we also wanted to gain some additional perspective on what these criticisms and upcoming changes made by officials might mean for GW moving forward. Looming over all this is also the federal Title IX guidelines currently in place, which were instituted during the Trump administration to heavy criticism due to the fact that they give alleged perpetrators of sexual assault a greater voice in the case process. So here to speak to all that is Professor Peter Lake. Lake is the director of the Center for Excellence in Higher Education Law and Policy at the Stetson University College of Law. He also served as Stetson's interim director of Title IX compliance in 2015. All right, Professor Lake, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Alec. Good to see you again. So student leaders in recent weeks have heavily criticized GW for its response to Title IX violations, which they say have failed to protect survivors of sexual assault. And one of those criticisms has been significantly delayed outreach by Title IX office to students, with some of those students saying it's taken months to get a response. And officials then responded to that by saying that they work to answer all claims within 48 hours. And they also noted that they'll hire more staff members moving forward to address some of these problems. But do you think there's more that the office can do to boost efficiency, and specifically when it comes to the issue of addressing students' claims? Well, we've been watching the, uh, the return to fall 2021 very carefully in Title IX, and a number of institutions are seeing a surge of requests for various interventions, including supportive measures and even full complaints. We, we sort of thought this would come, and it, it is a little sector specific. I noticed that some people are not experiencing what others are, but it was a little hard to predict what the volume would look like as we're beginning to return to something it feels a little more typical prior to the pandemic. And I would say a lot of institutions are looking to staff up for response because the new Title IX regulations that went into effect over a year ago put a great deal of emphasis on Title IX offices offering supportive measures uh, promptly and equitably. And that can take quite a bit of energy in part because it isn't always obvious when a complaint comes in that it is a Title IX complaint. And there's, you know, behind the scenes, there's a lot of sorting energy that has to occur. And sometimes it is obvious, but it isn't always. And the, the new regulatory structure essentially puts a really heavy burden on Title IX systems to try to sort things into the right pat and make sure they go in the right pot. And, that I think is something that is a bit unique to this new system that had not been beta tested, you know, before it went into effect in August of 2020. And then the reality is that last year we were thinking there were a lot of pent up issues that were likely to emerge in the fall of 2021 and beyond. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely surprised to hear that there's a backlog discussion going on. This is not atypical around the country and it's, uh, a lot of things are emerging as people re-emerge into uh, something like a pre-pandemic education experience. Another criticism towards the university has been this failure to bar perpetrators of sexual assault from campus, and in our case, that falls on the university police department. So, you know, do you think there is this a problem? I assume it is that you've heard about on, on other college campuses, and are there ways that you know universities have gone about trying to protect survivors of sexual assault on campuses? I, I have heard of this, and it's, um, I think it's particularly vexatious 
when you have two situations, a, a, a sort of an urban open campus or semi-urban open campus, or if you're in a small town where people graduate and move right across the street into apartments or housing nearby, where some folks just never leave the campus environment. They graduate, but they don't go. And it gets really tricky because you know, you can set boundaries for people and have no trespass, no enter rules. But in order to enforce that, you have to be able to be able to respond in real time to an entry. You'd have to arrest somebody and then hope that the criminal justice system would do something about it. And realistically, in a major metropolitan area, um, a simple trespass is not going to get a lot of attention from the judicial system. It, it's be a slap on the wrist for a lot of people if they violate it. Um, it may be that the ultimate solution lies in working with students, current students, to help them understand how to get protective orders in place in the judicial system that have real teeth. But yeah, if I could encourage people, if you can get um, injunctions or other protective orders in place, those can be effective because now that sets a separate legal standard. Lastly, I mean, in terms of looking at where these these federal Title IX regulations might go from here, I mean, earlier this year, you warned on, on this podcast that the rollback would not be an immediate priority and it seems as, as though sadly you were right. And so, you know, a couple of weeks ago, almost 60 House members sent a letter to Secretary of Education Cardona urging the department to roll back some of these rules. But even if they were able to implement them immediately, it would take a significant amount of time really for those new regulations to go into place. And, you know, House members were saying that that's time that survivors frankly just don't have. And so do you think that there might be some action on, you know, some of these regulations soon? And if so, you know, what impact might they have on schools like GW? Um, I, I, I think the expectation from a lot of survivors and advocacy groups was that Biden being the author of VAWA Save and in many ways the architect of the 2011 system would immediately come in and push Title IX forward to a new place. And as we've seen, it's it, the movement has been slow. Um, now the department told us in a, a technical regulatory way that their intention is to drop proposed regulatory changes in May of 2022 which means for, and that, that's exactly the message people on the podcast probably don't want to hear, because if you play that out, this entire academic year goes forward, and that would be proposed regulations, which would take another period of notice and comment. So you most likely on that schedule would not see anything any earlier than fall of 2022. So we're looking at almost an entire academic year before you see some change. But the challenge with that, Alec, is that this pace of change, I do not think will sit well with many survivors or survivors groups. They'll feel like the better part of two years will have elapsed before they'll see meaningful change. And then, you know, the pink song sort of resonates in the head is what about me? You know, I, I, I go through half of my undergraduate career with a system that finally changes and that's great, but it didn't, it didn't help me. Um, so we'll have to see what the administration intends to do. Well, Professor Lake, thanks so much for your insight as always. Oh, it's great to see you, Alec. Thank you. Thank you to both of our guests today for speaking to this important issue. 
Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by Alec Rich and is produced by Sarah Sachs. 